Well, this morning we are diving ahead a bit into the book of Jonah. And I'm going to encourage you to read along with me this morning. And we have, thanks to a generous donation, we have new Bibles in the seats out there. These are Common English Bible, that particular translation which we're using in worship. And these are paperback. And you'll notice inside we have a little sticker with the church logo on them. But that doesn't mean that they are property of. It means that if you need a Bible or you know someone who desperately needs a Bible, you can take this and give it to them. It's designed to be consumable because what Bibles are supposed to be consumable because we read them and we use them. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to open with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And we're going to read the first 10 verses of Jonah chapter 3. Page 704, I believe it is in the... uh... (laughs) I memorized the books of the Bible in second grade, so I remember that was part of the deal. You know, we got candy for doing it, so I was like, I'm all about the candy, baby, so... So I have the little song I sing in the back of my head when I do it. But when you get into Minor Prophets, it can get a little bit weird. So, so there it is. So it's a good thing to do. Um, we used to do Bible sword drills, you know, so you could look up, the, look up the passage the fastest. I always won. That's why I'm a pastor. So here we go. Jonah chapter 3. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city, walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. When word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes, and sat in ashes. Then he announced, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, cattle nor flock, will taste anything, no grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes and let them call upon God forcefully, and let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control." He thought, who knows, God may see this and turn from his wrath so that we might not perish. God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. This is God's word for God's people. There you go. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Well, thanks be to God, but maybe not yet. We have to get into the text first. We always say thanks be to God for the text, and then it goes out and challenges us, and we go, well, I'm not sure I'm thankful for that, but I guess I'd better do it. And this is one of those texts. Now, Jonah is the story that we know well. Most people, even if they don't know anything about the Bible, know the story of Jonah because Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And uh, we look at that, and there have been historians and scientists over the years who've tried to determine 
whether Jonah was actually swallowed by a great fish. I mean, could you survive in the belly of a whale for three days? It reminds me of uh, the story about a young boy who, who said that to his teacher. You know, I, I was reading the story of Jonah. Jonah was alive in the belly of the fish for three days, and the teacher said, I'm sorry, that's really not possible. There's not enough air for Jonah to survive there for three days, so I don't think that, that really happened. And the boy said, no, it says so in the Bible. It really happened. She said, I think you're you're looking at something that's probably metaphorical. It probably didn't happen that way. And the the boy said to his teacher, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. (laughs) And she said to him, well, what if Jonah's in hell? And he said, well, then you ask him. Anyway, the book of Jonah was probably written during the exile. It it captures a period of time when the northern kingdom of Israel is still around and the prophet Jonah is sent to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Assyria was Israel's bitter enemy. You know that, that they eventually took over the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., took away all the people, intermarried with them. And uh, the Assyrian Empire was a major, major force in the ancient world. And so if this story is written to the people of the exile, which happens after the southern kingdom is taken away by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., then Jonah is written to a people who are already living in a foreign culture. Indeed, a culture that is hostile to them. And so Jonah, I think, is kind of written as this, as this sort of warning tale to people. How do we live in the midst of this foreign, hostile culture? And I think it's a message that is particularly poignant for us today, two days before the election, because we live in an increasingly hostile culture, don't we? I mean... Not just hostile in terms of whether you're Republican or Democrat or lobbing stuff across the aisles or all that kind of stuff, but, but even for Christians in a post-Christendom world, how do you live in a culture that no longer values what you value, if they ever did in the first place? How do you live in a culture where things are quite different and where things seem to be out of control? I think Jonah offers us some options for how to deal with that, as this story offered to the exiles who were living in Babylon in a foreign culture. And I want to argue that there are three options here, and we'll dive into each one of them. And because I like alliteration, they all begin with R, so that you'll be able to remember them well. Remember begins with R, too. So there you go. Here's the first one. The first option is to run away. Now, God's word comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, the capital of Assyria, and proclaim my word against it. God wants to send Jonah to the belly of the beast, to their greatest enemy. The Assyrians, in many ways, in the ancient world, make ISIS look like Cub Scouts by comparison. They were a brutal empire. They were around for some 1,700 years. I mean, their their annals are filled with like how many heads they could stack up and how high they could make them, or skinning people alive and nailing their skins to pillars. These were not your average empire. And Jonah being sent to them was like saying, I want you to go and, and face certain death in many ways. 
Well, God's word comes to Jonah, and Jonah turns and goes the opposite direction. From where Jonah was, it was 2,500 miles to go over the Fertile Crescent to modern-day Iraq, near the city of Mosul. That's where Nineveh was. But instead, Jonah goes down to the shore, and he books passage on a trip to Tarshish, which is in the western Mediterranean Sea, about as far the opposite direction as you could get in the ancient world. Tarshish, probably the modern-day island of Sardinia, which today is a resort. Let's see, enemy capital, beach. I'll take the beach. But while we think Jonah is afraid of the Assyrians, what we learn when we look at this text is that Jonah isn't actually that concerned about the fact that he could die if he goes to Nineveh. Rather, what Jonah is afraid of is that his mission might actually be successful and that Israel's enemy might repent and not become an enemy anymore. Take a look at verse 3. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Jaffa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish away from the Lord. He flees from God because Jonah believes that God might actually preserve these people who are his enemy. Run away. I don't want any part of it. Might be fear. Might be fear of success. But Jonah runs from God. And we're tempted to do the same thing when we are confronted with a hostile culture, are we not? I mean, how many people have said, after Tuesday, if my candidate doesn't win, I'm moving to Canada? As though Canada is Tarshish. Have you been to northern Canada? Uh, it is the opposite of Tarshish. It's cold. People talk about trying to wall themselves off from the world. There's a, there's a lot of talk these days about what's called the Benedict option for Christians, which means to, to kind of reestablish kind of these monastic communities where we kind of have this enclave of Christians living together to stay apart from the world. We have our own schools and our own music and our own movies and all that kind of stuff to kind of stay separate from the rest of the culture. But you know, historically, when Christians have done that, it hasn't worked out very well. I mean, when I was going to school in Kentucky, going to seminary, there was an old Shaker village nearby. You know about the Shakers? Um, they were a, a sect of Anabaptists who uh, did not believe in marriage and what comes with marriage, sexuality. So the men and women lived separately, and uh, they made a lot of furniture, I guess because they had to do something. And uh, <laughs> so they made a lot of furniture... But eventually the sect died out. There are only a few shakers left. Why? Well, yeah, that's why. They didn't have any more. It doesn't really work when we wall ourselves off from the culture. It's easy for Christians to stand apart from the culture and sort of see ourselves as not in it, as though we live in some great glass house from which we can throw stones at the culture. Jonah wanted to run away, but one of the things we learn from the Bible is that running is not an option. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, which is a book that uses Jonah to teach pastors. It's a fantastic book, very convicting book. He says this. He says, we respond to the divine initiative, but we humbly request to choose the destination. 
We are going to be disciples, but not in Nineveh, for heaven's sake. Let's try Tarshish. In Tarshish, we can have a religious career without having to deal with God. Boom. We love Tarshish, but that's not where we're being sent. Remember what Jesus told his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. He's about to depart from them. He gives them what we know as the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Preach the good news to all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Go into all the world, all nations. I will be with you. Will Willimon, who's a retired Methodist bishop and uh, professor at Duke University, says, he says, every time I read that passage, he says, I wonder if, if Jesus is giving us assurance or if it's a threat, I will be with you always. Because if he is with you always, that means you're going to go where he sends you, even to places we may not want to go. Methodists understand that going is the only option. I mean, we believe in provenient grace. We don't believe that God's grace is only available to some and not to others. We believe it's available to all people. And so, therefore, all people need to hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond. Running away is not an option. Well, that leads us to the second option, which is repentance. We see what happens at the end of chapter 2, where it says, Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah out onto dry land. I love that. That, that actually captures all the other translations, try to get it a little softer. This really gets at the Hebrew. Blech, you know, just barfed him out onto the beach. Because remember, when, when Jonah runs away, he is, he is uh, trying to get away from God. There's a great storm. The sailors on the boat are afraid. They're pagans. They're praying to their gods. Jonah knows what the deal is. He knows that it's because of him. So he tells the other sailors to throw him into the sea, which they do. And he gets swallowed and spends three days in the fish. But before that, Jonah prays. There he is in the belly of the fish. He prays this in chapter 2. I called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld I cried out for help. You have heard my voice. You had cast me into the depths and the heart of the seas and the flood surrounds me. All your strong waves and rushing water passed over me. So I said I have been driven away from your sight. Will I ever again look on your holy temple? Waters have grasped me to the point of death. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head at the base of the undersea mountains. I have sunk down to the underworld. Its bars held me with no end in sight, but you brought me out of the pit. When my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy. But me, I will offer a sacrifice to you with a voice of thanks. That which I have promised, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Now when we read that, we think, wow, Jonah seems to have learned his lesson, right? He tried to run from God. Now he's in the belly of the fish. He's seeing death, but God preserved his life by putting him there, even though it's not the, the greatest place in the world. But when you read this text closely, you notice that Jonah is not really that repentant. I mean, think about it. He says, I called out to the Lord in my distress. 
No, he didn't. He ran away from God. You had cast me into the depths. Notice, he blames God for putting him in the water. He wouldn't have been in the water if he hadn't been on the boat in the first place. Right? Seaweed is wrapped around my head. When my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord. Not so much. Then at verse 8, he takes a shot at those pagan sailors and at the Ninevites themselves. Those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy. But what is Jonah's mission? To go and offer them exactly that, a chance for mercy. I think what the writer of Jonah is trying to teach these exiles and to teach us is that before we can engage a culture, before we can see a culture around us as hostile and wicked, we have to look at ourselves first. We have to recognize our own need for repentance, our own brokenness, our own hurt. And so this is teaching the exiles how not to pray. If you look at this closely in the Hebrew, Jonah uses the personal pronoun I or me 26 times in eight verses. Just a little bit narcissistic. What Jonah needs is real repentance. It's easy for us to blame the culture. It's easy for us to look at the enemy and say, not like us. But indeed, they are like us. Sinners in need of grace. Repentance means to change the mind, to change one's orientation. And when we do that, when we recognize our own brokenness, it is much easier for us to see others as being more like us. We have compassion and mercy because we know that from which we have been saved and we want to offer it to someone else. It is so pious for Christians to say things like, there but for the grace of God go I. You know what? That does not appear in Scripture. That is not a prayer that appears in Scripture. You know what appears a lot, though? The prayer of the tax collector who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If we're going to do what God commands, the first option for us is repentance, recognizing that it's not them and us, there is only us. Well, that brings us to the third option, re-engaging the mission. The fish couldn't stomach Jonah's self-righteousness, so it barfs him out on the beach. And God says, for a second time, I want you to go to Nineveh. This time, Jonah obeys, albeit grudgingly. He takes that 2,500-mile trek from Joppa all the way to Nineveh, probably traveling in a caravan. He would have been quite a sight. Here was Jonah, probably bleached white from the intestinal juices of the whale, smelling, because you could never get that smell out. I imagine if skunk is bad, that was probably worse. Seaweed still being picked out of his hair, all that kind of stuff. And I imagine he was kind of by himself in the caravan. And when he gets to Nineveh, he begins to preach. But this is the worst sermon in history. This would fail any homiletics course that you could possibly teach. All he does is walk around the city saying 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Notice he doesn't mention God. He's probably speaking a language they don't even understand. He looks like a maniac. 
He probably is the equivalent of that guy walking around with a sandwich board on him that says the end is near. Terrible. This is not how you're supposed to do it. And yet, and yet, the Ninevites repent. They hear this word and suddenly they are in sackcloth and ashes and they are repenting all over the place. I love this passage. When I teach preaching, I always remind preachers that no matter how lousy your sermon is on any given Sunday, because the Holy Spirit is present, people will hear it. If Jonah can convert a whole city with this, you'll be okay. Do your best, but you'll be okay. I trust that every Sunday when I'm standing here, people, that the Holy Spirit is standing right here in between translating. That's the way it's got to be. Jonah's preaching actually works. They repent. But Jonah's not happy. Jonah did what God told him to do, but it was with grudging obedience. Notice that after, in chapter 4, Jonah preaches, he goes outside the city, and he sits down, and I imagine him kind of crossing his arms and saying, okay, God, I did what you told me to do. These people still deserve it. Now bring the smoke. Rain down some fire here. They deserve it. These are the people who pile up heads, after all. Make it happen. But what do we see happens? Even the king repents. This is a message to the exiles, too. Because remember the kings of Israel who committed all that evil with no repentance? People in exile would have recognized they were there because of the sins of themselves and their kings. And these Ninevites repent. Jonah's angry at God for doing so. But God says, do you not realize, Jonah, that I love these people? Look at the very last verse of Jonah. God says, yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? God says, Jonah, your mission was to do what I told you to do. I'm responsible for the result. Jonah learns the lesson. Actually, he probably doesn't. It kind of hangs there at the end, but it's the lesson for us. And that is that this is all about offering grace. That we are to be signs of God's grace in the midst of a hostile culture. It's interesting that, that the one of the symbols we use for Christianity, the symbol that people slap on their car all the time and then cut you off on the highway, is the fish. <laughs> this is the, uh, the ichthus. That's the Greek word for fish. And it's, it's, it's Veterans Week, right? So Veterans Day week. So those of you who are veterans understand acronyms. This is an early form of acronym. Ichthus in Greek, if you break it down by letter, stands for Jesus Christos Theos Hueos Hotirios, which means Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior. And if you were an early Christian, you want to determine if somebody else was a Christian, you might have a casual conversation, and you might draw an arc in the, in the sand with your toe, and the other person, if they completed it, you knew you were talking with a believer. It's an image born of water. Tertullian, who was an early church father from the early centuries of Christianity, saw the fish as being an even more important symbol. He said this, We little fishes after the image of our ichthus, Jesus Christ, are born 
in the water. We are born in the water of baptism. And then we are put on the beach and we are sent off in mission to re-engage the mission God has for his creation, to bring good news to those who need it the most. Jesus would say that the only sign this generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. We are resurrection people. We recognize that even where death reigns, new life is possible. We are called to go faithfully and present the good news even to those who are not like us, even to those who are hostile. And we do it humbly and with God's help. Can't run away. It's time to repent and re-engage the mission. Well, what do we know happened with Nineveh? Historically, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria... The Assyrian Empire was around for 1,700 years. Most empires, when they go away, they kind of fade away. The Roman Empire kind of faded out by the 5th century. You know, the British Empire, all these empires of the world just kind of tend to peter out over time. But this empire that had been around for 1,700 years disappeared from a historical standpoint almost overnight. The Babylonians and Medes eventually rose up against Assyria and destroyed the city of Nineveh. And the Assyrian Empire was no more. Babylonia took over all their territory, including the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. And the destruction of Nineveh was so sudden and so complete that just a couple of generations later, people didn't know anything about it. The Greek historian Xenophon came by there. 200 years after the destruction of Nineveh. And he saw these ruins, these walls that were left of this great city that had been three miles across. And Xenophon asked the local people, those who had lived there for generations, what is this? What walls are these? And the people couldn't tell him. Disappeared. You have to wonder what might have happened if we spin this story out to its logical conclusion, if Jonah had stayed with them and nurtured their repentance and told them about the God who had created the world and who was making all things new, how might things have turned out differently? We live in a time where people love to stand apart from the culture and lob invectives at it. We love to post stuff on Facebook and Twitter and social media and read stuff that agrees with us and denigrates the other politicians don't talk about their stuff they always talk about the other person friends if we're truly going to be the people of God God is calling us to re-engage and to love and to care and to be present with because we are fish powered people we're swimming against the stream. The Lord puts us on the beach and says, go. Go and represent me. Preach the gospel to all nations. So the question I want to leave you with then is, what's your Nineveh? 
Who are those people who it's easy for you to say, them, recognizing that it's only just us? How will you embrace your Nineveh with the good news and love of Jesus Christ?